The reading today comes from Matthew 7, 1 to 5. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way as you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in someone else's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from the other person's eye. This is the word of the Lord. Should we pray together? Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your teaching to us. Lord, I pray as we spend some time thinking about this tricky, quite affronting passage, Lord, help us to leave this place more in love with you than when we came. Help us to leave this place more the church you are calling us to be than when we came. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Good morning. Let me add my welcome to you this morning. My name is Aidan, uh, and I'm the curate here at Christchurch. Uh, I'm not going to get uh, bored of singing and praising uh, since we're allowed to do it again. Oh, it's, it's phenomenal, isn't it? So thank you. Thank you to the band for leading as well. What a start. Right. So this summer, as Paul said, we've been looking at the parables, looking at a whole wide range of parables, actually. We've spent quite a long time throughout all of July and August looking at the parables of Jesus. And we've had a wide range, haven't we? We've had some that are more familiar, uh, some that you may well know really well, and others that are a bit more uncommon, perhaps. Um, But a theme that I've kind of detected as we've gone through is that the parables and the teaching within them, it's hard, isn't it? (laughs) They're quite hard teachings. You know, firstly, sometimes they're hard to understand, You know, Jesus was obviously speaking uh, to a particular people in a particular context, uh, and he was he was did some of his parables. They're really hard to understand what the meaning is. You've got the parable of the shrewd manager that I spoke on a few weeks ago, which is just like (laughs) it leaves you with more questions than answers sometimes. Or we had Paul here was last week speaking on the parable of the ten miners or the or the talents, depending on how you look at it. And sometimes they can leave us with more questions than answers. Uh, And parables and metaphors are hard to understand at the best of time. That's before 2,000 years of history uh, and the difficulties of translating ancient texts and all that. So the parables are hard uh, just to understand. but, But actually, as we do unpick them and unpick the teaching in them, they're hard to understand because the teaching is often really, really challenging. Really, really difficult. You know, they call us to a new way of life, a radical way of living, living not by the ways of this world, but by the ways and under the values of the kingdom of God, a life that is completely transformed, as Paul wrote in his conclusion after, you know, experiencing meeting Jesus. He wrote, the old has gone and the new has come. That is what the Christian life is. The intensity that these guys have spoken about of Hazelmere, that's a life we are called to live all times, We are called to live every day as a new day following Jesus. We've had parables like the the wise man building his house upon the rock that causes us to look at the very foundations of our living, 
We've had parables about wealth and finance, like the camel in the eye of the needle, looking us to, to assess uh, every aspect of our life and our possessions. And today, the parable of the speck and plank is again a hard, hard parable. It's the end of Jesus' infamous Sermon on the Mount, where he talks about entirely about what the kingdom of God is like. And once more, it's a hard teaching because it speaks to our innermost self. It speaks to our inner thoughts, our feelings, and how we look and speak to others. Jesus said, do not judge or you yourselves will be judged. Then he carried on, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your eye? You hypocrite. <laughs> nice soft teaching for us. No, this is hard. It's hard because, because actually we all do judge other people, don't we? We do all make judgments, whether we're conscious of them or not. You know, maybe we outwardly say something, but maybe we just kind of keep it inwardly churning over. Sometimes we look at others and we make judgments and we see their lives and their life choices and, and we see that maybe it's not going quite so well. And sometimes, even discreetly, back in you know, one of our blind spots, is that it makes us feel good about ourselves if someone else is not having quite such a good time. You know, the Germans have a word for it, don't they? Schadenfreunde, which is the, the kind of pleasure you feel at the misfortune of others. It's this weird, messed up world we live in. But then we also make judgments that affect us more negatively. You know, we look at others judgingly and we compare ourselves to them and we don't quite match up. You know, if anyone uh, is, is on social media, you'll know that this is terrible for this. Anyone who's on Facebook or Instagram will know the feeling of scrolling through, looking at people's lives and saying, oh, my life's not as good as that. It might be, if, you don't, if you're not on social media, maybe you've got family or friends who send you Christmas letters who say how perfect their life is and it makes you feel bad about your own one. Anyone else? Was that just me? Yeah. yeah. So we can compare ourselves and we can ju make judgments uh, and, and then they're not necessarily good, or, but they're inevitable, aren't they? This is a hard teaching. But it's also hard to understand exactly what Jesus is talking about because, because this judgment, judging that we do is inevitable, isn't it? I had some questions afterwards. You know, how, if we're meant to live this life as Christians, how surely we are made to, meant to make judgments. You know, as Christians, we follow Jesus uh, and we follow his example. And he was a prophet as well as a savior and a king. And a prophet in the sense that he spoke out against other, you know, authority. He spoke out. He, he, he called out injustice when he saw it. He made judgments to some extent. He spoke out and he called people to repentance. He called people to live in the way of God's kingdom. He challenged religious leaders when he saw them doing mistreating people or when they got things wrong. He challenged them. He made judgments in some extent. So aren't we as the church, that as a mouthpiece for God's truth and justice, how can we be that if we're not allowed to make any judgments? Well, actually, I don't think Jesus is saying don't judge at all, that we should never make judgments. He's, he can't be because at the end of the parable, he says that we should address our brothers, the speck in our brother's eye. He says once we've taken the plank out of our own eyes, then we are able to remove the speck from our brother's eyes. So what is Jesus saying do, when he says do not judge or you too will be judged? 
Well, I think like some of our other parables that we've had, this is Jesus is illustrating the way the world works. He says, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And that's true, isn't it? In all sorts of walks of life, as soon as someone speaks out, as soon as someone makes a judgment in some way or other, it's like a moral, uh, a moral mirror is held up to them looking for hypocrisy. It happens all the time in the media. Uh, you might see celebrities or, or uh, politicians. They might say one thing, but then be outed by their own kind of actions or things they've said in the past. I'm sure we can all think of examples of that. But it happens in the church as well, doesn't it? A few years ago, you might remember Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury. He, uh, he spoke out against payday money, payday money lenders like Wonga and the injustice and, and the, the issues that they had where they were leading people into a life, like kind of tricking people into a life crippled by debt repayments up to 4,000% or whatever it is. So Justin Welby spoke out against this rightly. This, this is not a good thing in our society. But then the next day, it came out that actually the Church of England was investing money in Wonga and had made money and profits from their profits. And then last year, we had, we had of course, you know, other forms of injustice being spoken out against. We had many vicars and bishops joining in the, kind of stand, in the taking the knee to stand against racial injustice and prejudice. But then in April, we had a Panorama documentary come out talking about how the Church of England has failed to deal with institutional racism in its own organization. The moral mirror is held up. But that's on a big scale, but of course it happens in, in our lives as well, doesn't it? It happens in, in the life of local churches as well. A friend of mine, he isn't a Christian, uh, but he does value the teachings of Jesus a little bit, the moral teachings. But the problem he has is he's, he's kind of been, when he's been thinking about faith before, he visited his grandparents' church and what he discovered there was the most bickering, uh, judgmental group of people that he said that he'd ever met. It's like the life they were living was not exactly the life they were talking about. It was hardly living life and experiencing life in all its fullness. Actually, the church's hypocrisy in some way turned my friend away from faith. A recent, group of, uh, a recent study of a group of vicars and pastors' children uh, who were no longer attending church. Uh, it, it asked people, you know, why are you not attending church? What, what in particular has kind of turned you away from the Christian faith? And the number one reason for these young people was not the church was boring, not that, that Christianity was irrelevant. Actually, the main reason was hypocrisy. Their parents were preaching a faith on a Sunday and not living it Monday to Saturday. They weren't living it behind closed doors. And obviously that's relevant. I, you can see why I noticed that as someone trying to raise a Christian child. But I'm sure there's relevance for all of us in that. Likewise, if as, as a church we're going to call people to follow Jesus, if accept the gospel, the good news, the grace of God that we've been singing about, if we're going to invite people to do that, then they're going to hold up the moral mirror at some point. They're going to look at our lives and look to see how it's playing out. So this parable is hard. We read verses 4 and 5 again. How can you speak, say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. And this is the key bit. First, take the plank out of your own eye, 
and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So just to finish, I want us to dig really deeply into this idea of the first taking the plank out of our own eye. What would it mean for you? What would it mean for I? Me, not my, <laughs> mean for me? That's the difference between reading and thinking right there. What would it mean for you and I to take the plank out of our own eyes? What would it take for us to see clearly, to see our blind spots, to live lives that when the moral mirror is held up, they stand up to scrutiny? Well, I think the answer is repentance. Repentance. I think the Apostle Paul gives us a perfect example, a fantastic example of how to live here because he spoke out. To some extent, he made judgments. You know, he wrote three letters to the Corinthian church at least, taught challenging them to change their ways of living and being church. But in doing so, he also invited judgment. He said, go ahead, hold up that mirror, look at my life. See, in many of his letters, many of his writings, Paul would validate his teaching by saying, when we were living with you, look how we lived. Look at our lives. Look at our way of being when we lived with you. The life that God gives in all its fullness, look how we were experiencing it. Seeing people healed, praying for people to heal, living and serving you in everything, making every day a, a glorious uh, joy to follow Jesus. Their lives were based on God's kingdom's goodness. More than that, Paul was also honest about his own planks, planks that he kind of dealt with in the past, but planks he was still experiencing. Remember, this was a man who'd started by persecuting the church. He'd been persecuting and having Christians executed. And he told that story quite a lot in his letters. He comes back to it again and again, saying, you know, this is what my life was like. This is what I was doing. When I met Jesus on the Damascus Road, he said, why are you persecuting me? But also, once he became a Christian, he didn't then claim to be perfect. He never claimed to be infallible. He knew and admitted to the planks that he still had to remove. He was continually repenting. For example, 2 Corinthians 12, kind of one of the last chapters he wrote to the Corinthian church. He said this, that he had a sin, he spoke of a sin in his life. He said he had a thorn in his flesh, that's what he called it. And he prayed multiple times to have that removed, but God had left it in him. But God's words to him are so profound. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. You see, in Paul's acceptance of his fallibility, his sin, his blind spots, the planks in his own eye, God's work of grace was most evident. Likewise for us, it is in our, in our humility, in our accepting our shortcomings and recognizing our own faults, that actually God's goodness is most clearly evident. On your chairs, you'll probably have a little uh, bookmark, hopefully, that the office have made this week. Uh, and it's got a prayer on it. Now, for centuries, uh, the Christian church has copied Paul's example, making space for regular repentance. Every Church of England service will, at some point in it, have an act of confession and absolution. We've already done it here in our service today. 
Every, every church service will have some way in which we come back to God regularly, regularly coming back to his goodness, his forgiveness. And this uh, prayer on, on, your book, on your bookmarks is kind of adapted from a, an ancient Christian prayer called the Jesus Prayer. Uh, it's a prayer particularly common in Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches. Uh, and it's the Jesus Prayer is, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Tom Wright, who's a theologian and a bishop, uh, kind of converted it into a Trinity prayer. And what, what Christians throughout the years have done is they've used this, a prayer, almost as if breathing. Breathing, like breathe, saying one line on the in-breath, saying another bra- bra- on the next line on the out-breath. So, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, set up your kingdom in our midst. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Holy Spirit, breath of the living God, renew me and the whole world. And I would invite you this week, maybe give this a go, just regularly. Have this in a place where you can see it. It might be as used as a bookmark, you might put it up or something like that. A place to regularly pray. The reason being is we want to make space for repentance. We want to make space for God to reveal to us our blind spots. Because as we admit our shortcomings our planks, our weakness. God's power is made perfect. His goodness, his forgiveness is made known to us and those around us. Because that same study of pastors and vicars' children also spoke to people who'd stayed in church and kept their faith, asking, you know, what about your parents' faith and life had encouraged you in your own faith? And whereas hypocrisy was the main number one reason for people leaving church, authenticity was the main reason that they stayed. The most popular answer was that honesty was what they saw from their parents. Seven days a week, inside and outside the church, they lived their lives authentically. In the good times and the bad times, they showed what life being a Christian was like, living in this world, living authentic Christian lives and not hypocritical ones. Likewise, if we're going to share the gospel with those around us, let's be real. Let's not pretend to be on some pedestal. Let's not say, you know, you know we're, we're right, you're wrong, and batter them with the truth. But actually, let's say, you know, God is good, isn't he? God is good, and let's follow him. And he gives us a life that we can't have ourselves. You know, I've known this in my life. I've seen how he's turned my life around. I've seen how he's making me new every single day. Continuously recognizing and addressing those planks, those blind spots. Then people might hear that message that God's kingdom is better than anything this kingdom can offer. And that there is good news we can accept today and for all our days. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your goodness, your love, your just, <laughs> your justice, your mercy. Help us to be honest about every aspect of our lives with you and with ourselves. Help us as a church to be humble. 
help us to deal with our own planks that we might see clearly. Maybe we can use this prayer and say this together uh, from the Trinity Prayer. If you'd like to get it out in front of you from the bookmarks. Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, set up your kingdom in our midst. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Holy Spirit, breath of the living God, renew me and all the world. Amen. Amen.